0: What are some of the key topics banks and credit unions should be focused on for 2016? Gartner analyst and financial fraud and cybersecurity expert Aviva Leighton says cybersecurity regulatory guidance, the EMV rollout, and identity assessment will be the top three themes for banking institutions over the next 12 months. Here, Leighton explains why she anticipates these trends impacting the financial sector the most in 2016 and offers advice to help banking institutions prepare. Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. So, Aviva, last year we spoke a lot about the new cybersecurity assessment tool. Let's go back to revisit this new tool that was issued by the FFIEC in June of 2015. How would you say banks and credit unions are using this tool, and how are regulators assessing their use of it? Do you think the tool needs more refinement?
1: That's a good question, Tracy. The regulators were definitely going down the right track with this tool because the intention is and was to move away from a checklist mentality to a risk-based approach where banks would have to take a hard look at their maturity level and the risks that they face and put those two dimensions together to figure out if they were adequately meeting the risk. They also issued guidance for the C-level suite to get involved for the first time we saw Advice on how CEOs and boards of directors need to oversee this process and the level of involvement that they need to have. So in principle, it all started out very well and good, but we have been getting lots of calls from our clients where the process itself doesn't seem to live up to the spirit of the guidance and the regulations. And what I mean by that is, even though it is intended for banks to take a hard look and think for themselves, it still ends up being a series of questions, yes and no questions within these categories. And there's no room, from what I've been told, to put in any kind of thoughts and context and text to explain, well, no, we're not compliant in this specific subcategory. And this is the reason we're not. We don't think we need to be but we still think we're adequately meeting the risk and that we are at a certain maturity level. And so the way the tool works, from what I've been told, is you have to answer a series of questions within each category. And let's say if 2 out of 10 questions are answered with a no and 8 out of 10 questions are answered with a yes, the whole category is considered a negative for the bank because they've got 2 tenths rated as a negative and they can't put any kind of context in. The financial institutions I'm talking to really don't know how to handle that. They don't know who to talk to about it. They want to know what everyone else is doing and if everyone else is having problems. And the disturbing part is that I don't know if there's any education here. The FFIUC put out some good documentation, although some of it was issued after the fact in pieces, and it's not really clear where you start all the time, but in general, there should be some place to go to ask questions, and you shouldn't have to know who to ask and hope that they respond in your email. I think that, you know, what we're witnessing is phase one of this new tool, and hopefully phase two will allow more judgment, more context, and that it will be accompanied with outgoing and proactive education. So there is a place to go to talk, to work together. There should be some working groups and conferences, and, and I'm not seeing any of that yet. PCI did a really good job of that, I may have problems with the PCI standard. Lots of people have problems with the implementation and the process. But one thing, you got to hand it to PCI. They came out with a really good community outreach process. They get people involved. You know, there are processes of who to talk to. You can use your judgment and put some text in. So hopefully this cybersecurity assessment will reach that same maturity. Right now, it's a little too crude from what I can tell.
0: Aviva, what about the management addendum that was issued in the fall that outlines the cybersecurity role for management and the Board of Directors. Do you think that most banking institutions are aware of this addendum?
1: That's a really good question as well. They're not aware of it. In fact, every single call I've had on this subject, I would point out the addendum to the clients, because it seems to me you should start with the governance process and setting that up before you get involved in any of the details. Most of the clients I've spoken with, in fact, all of them, were unaware of this addendum. And several of them were grateful that I pointed it out because if you don't have governance set up from the beginning, it's very hard to pull this off. And you know, the biggest problems these banks face are siloed processes and siloed departments that each have their own marching orders. And what the governance process does is force everyone to start working on the same page through some kind of steering committee. And they know that they have to report to the CEO and the board at some level on this. So it helps reduce those silos and break down the wall. And that's a key part of this guidance. Most are not aware of it, from what I can tell.
0: So let's move on from the regulatory environment, Aviva, to EMV. What would you say we could see as far as EMV changes are concerned in 2016, now that the rollout in the U.S. is in full swing? Do you think that we could see updates to EMV or the way that we implement EMV changing somehow?
1: I think there's a few big issues with EMV that most parties are talking about. One is how it slows down the checkout, and the second is the PIN versus signature debate. So let's talk about each of those separately. On the slowdown of the checkout, it's true that checking out with an EMV contact card takes at least eight seconds. It can take up to 10 or 12 seconds from what I've been told. Um, and that's a problem for everyone. The retailers don't like it. The consumers don't like it. The banks don't want people to be turned off from their credit cards and debit cards. And so, luckily, or not luckily, but fortuitously, is well aware of this issue, and they are working on a new protocol that will speed up the EMV checkout considerably because right now, as part of the EMV handshake, the system has to wait for the total amount to be tallied in the system, and that total amount goes into the cryptogram that's used for the one-time code that's part of the EMV protocol. So it expects to see this final amount, and that's why everyone has to sit there and wait for the handshake. So what they're working on is filling that amount up with an estimated amount for the authentication process and then wait for the total amount that's used only for the authorization. So that would speed up the checkout considerably. That means you could do the authentication almost right away and then just send another message at the end. And I think Visa is trying to get MasterCard on board. They may have a similar initiative from all I know, but these card brands are well aware that the American public is not used to sitting and waiting for the handshake, and it's frustrating. You would think that we have an extra eight to ten seconds to our day, but we really don't. We want fast payments, especially with uh, certain kind of industries and sectors like cafeterias and movie lines. So the card brands are well aware, and they are working on the problem, and I think they'll make considerable progress. I've also heard a big box retailer, they took this upon themselves to speed the checkout, and they went from eight seconds down to less than a second in the EMD contact card handshake. They were able to do that by bringing all the data that's needed to do the verification and validation into memory. That was part of their trick, because instead of having to reach out to servers far away to get validated data back, now they could just do it within their store network. So there's different kinds of approaches to solving the problem. What's interesting is that one of the alternatives when you're faced with a slow plastic card checkout is to use a mobile payment. And so my own thought and the thought of many others is that EMG plastic may spur the American public to whip out mobile phones with mobile payments and use that instead because it's much faster. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, Visa and MasterCard work on solutions that could undermine the adoption of mobile payments because, you know, in the end, plastic's so easy that people won't adopt mobile payments. And in fact, the adoption of NFC mobile payments has been... Very slow, very disappointing, no matter what anyone tells you. That's what the card brands will tell you and what the big issuing banks will tell you is that NFC is not caught on with consumers for whatever reason, maybe not enough habit. Many of these companies and card brands and banks are trying to figure out what is going to win. Is it going to be QR codes like uh, Chase and Walmart Pay? Is it going to be Beacon's uh, payment system in Australia? Is it going to be MagStripe data transmission like you see with Samsung Pay? So everybody's still betting on lots of horses, but in the meantime, good old plastic will probably continue and will continue to reign and creative companies will make it much faster to check out in the future. Secondly, you know, the security debate has been a big issue. The pin versus signature with the retailers wanting pins, the banks, Saying, no PIN, and what I found out recently is that, first of all, 70% of transactions don't require a signature or a PIN. They don't require any cardholder verification because they're under the threshold of $50. So, 70% of U.S. transactions already don't require any cardholder verification, and according to one of the card brands, 50% of merchants in the United States don't even have PIN pads associated with their point-of-sale terminal, so they can't even accept PINs. So the argument from the card brands and the banks are, we don't take any verification on 70% of our transactions, and why do we want to start taking it now with CHIP, and why do we want to force 50% emergence to upgrade their terminals to take PINs. Now, this could be dry cleaners and very small merchants, but in terms of number of merchants, it's 50%. I'm sure it's not that high when it comes to volume of transactions because the big box retailers are more or less 80% of the transaction volume, I think. In any event, uh, I think the PIN versus signature versus nothing debate uh, needs more enlightenment because these new statistics I just learned about, the 50% merchants and the 70% transactions, not requiring cardholder verification shed a lot of light on why we should not introduce PINs in the United States because it would force expenses and inconvenience that may not be necessary. And we are seeing a lot of advances in biometrics that may start becoming very easy for consumers to use also as an alternative to a PIN or signature. But in general, I think what we can expect is more progress, more innovation with regards to E&D rollout, making it faster, keeping it convenient, and making it much more secure than MagStripe has been. Of course, that will push the fraud to card not present. In other countries that are EMV enabled and adopted, 70% of the card fraud is card not present fraud.
0: And then let's shift a little bit to talk about some of the massive data breaches that we've seen over the course of the last two years with a lot of the breaches that we've seen in 2015 exposing personally identifiable information. With the theft of all of this PII, how is it impacting banks from a user authentication and identification management perspective?
1: Theft of PII data has enabled up to 60% of criminals to beat the knowledge-based authentication questions that most banks use to verify identities. And I get that number from banks and from government agencies, like tax collection agencies, that tell me 60% of the criminals that attempt to answer those questions based on life history succeed because they've stolen all that data. And so this is one of the biggest fraud issues that banks face, is how do you know who you're dealing with on the other end of the line, whether you're setting up a new account or executing a high-value money transfer You can't rely on this PII data anymore because so much of it's been stolen. One state collection agency for taxes told me that more of their citizens have had their identity compromised than haven't. And when I heard that from this tax collection agency, I just kind of gasped, but I don't know why I was surprised when you hear and you read about all these data breaches, you know, 80 million records here, 20 million records there. Of course this is getting put to use by the criminals. So banks have to look for alternative methods to verify customer identities. And and I do know of some that are using non-PII data very successfully. They still have to use PII data in most cases because the regulators require it, especially for money laundering and compliance. But they find that they get better results, even though they are hesitant to say that, by using non-PII data like email and phone number and address and device and how all those elements link to each other and the speed of a transaction and how someone's moving through the screen. So it's more or less the same techniques that all the big e-commerce companies are using, like Facebook and Apple and PayPal and lots of different methods to verify an identity without relying on PII data that's been compromised The majority of cases, anyway. So this is definitely the single largest issue I'm seeing in tri And thankfully, there's lots of solutions out there, but you have to be able to piece them together, which isn't always easy.
0: So what about from an identity assessment perspective, Aviva, what else are the bad guys doing with this stolen PII, and how would you say that it's impacting other sectors beyond financial services?
1: Uh, One thing I learned from speaking with some of the intelligence agencies and threat intelligence agencies is these bad guys are assembling portfolios of individuals. So, you know, they've got a big database of American citizens and all their data associated with their identity. And lots of different people are buying up this data in the dark web. Some of them are cyber criminals trying to break into banks. Some of them are terrorists trying to uh, launder money. And others are, you know, just nation states trying to get something out of U.S. companies. And they're using this data to get to their targets. So, for example, let's say there's some nation state that's trying to get into a defense contractor system to steal the blueprint for the latest bomber. Well, they're going to try to get to one of the employees or a contractor working on that bomber. So they'll go into the database, see where that contractor lives, where he sends his kids to school, who the teacher is in that school, what the teacher's email address is, and then they'll send an email, purportedly to be from the teacher's email address, purportedly being the teacher, to the contractor, stating the name of the contractor's child. Your child, Amy, in third grade is having disciplinary issues. She's asking out a lot and we really need you to come in for a parent-teacher conference. Well, you can be sure that contractor is going to click on that email. That is the most common method of infiltration into any kind of company, whether it's a bank, a defense contractor, a utility, is through spear phishing emails that are very targeted. And the way that they're targeted is by using all this data that's been assembled on Americans and other nationals too.
0: So what are some of the solutions here, Aviva? Are there opportunities for biometric authentication or behavioral analytics, which you've hit on a little bit?
1: There's never a shortage of innovation in the security and fraud detection market and the most promising advances I see are around security and fraud analytics, machine learning. So basically involves profiling individuals, profiling their peer groups, profiling machines and servers and network behavior and endpoint behavior, application behavior, and then looking for anomalies to that behavior using different types of machine learning models. Um, As you know, the machine learning is getting much more advanced. We're getting these deep neural networks now that are self- Teaching as long as we feed them the right training data. So lots of good advancements there. There's also good advancements in mobile identification, so using people's mobile device to identify who they are, where they are, and attaching their biometric to their device. So Tracy Kitten, we know this is your phone. We're sure it's yours, and we're sure it's you, because we've just scanned your retina. And we, we made sure it's not a picture, and it's 99.9998% accurate. So when you combine that kind of strong authentication with strong security and fraud analytics, you end up in a pretty good situation and able to stay ahead of the criminals.
0: Well, Aviva, I'd like to thank you for your time today. As always, very informative. We have a lot to look forward to in 2016. Thank you, Tracy. It's a pleasure, and have a very good year. Again, we've just heard from Aviva Lighten of Gartner. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.